everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes. I'm joined by Terry Fakes, and we are joined this week by one of our favorite books, a very influential book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection by Thomas Chalmers. And uh, Dad, I'll kick it over to you to introduce what we're doing with these next few podcasts. Well, we were talking and we thought it might be worth sharing with you some of the books for each of us. And there's some overlap, but there's quite a bit of not overlap that have really impacted us. And to discuss the books in some detail so that we realize not everyone is going to read every book. There are books here that you've read I haven't. But I very much appreciate hearing a little bit of an in-depth synopsis of the books. And then I can decide to go read it if I want, or I can just walk away with some of the key ideas without having read it. And we thought that might be a service to our listeners. And so this book was on both of our list. It's uh, uh, basically a sermon from Thomas Chalmers. And Crossway has started to publish some of these classics in very about four by six inch for small uh, paperback bound called the Crossway Short Classics series. And I think you and I both read it before then, but it's a nice little addition. And so the first book we wanted to look into and give you a bit of a synopsis of the key ideas and why it's been so impactful to us is this sermon from Thomas Chalmers. And Thomas Chalmers uh, lived from 1780 into the mid-1800s. And you might think uh, William Wilberforce and the slavery, those kinds of things. He was a Scottish Christian who was really uh, influenced by Wilberforce to make his faith more than a ritual faith. And uh, I'll let you tell a little bit more about him and his role in the Scottish church if you want to. But of his works, this little short book has probably had a huge impact on me, and I know you as well. Yeah, Thomas Chalmers is what we call a Puritan. He's from the era, he's he's a very late Puritan, um, almost past the Puritan time right. period, but, but still has the same kind of theological commitments. He's, he's Scottish, as you mentioned. He has a very interesting conversion story because he was a Christian, or at least he uh, thought he was a Christian throughout his early mm -hmm. adult life. And in fact, he was a pastor, but he was really a lot more interested in the moral philosophy that he was doing and teaching at the University of St. Andrews and then uh, at Edinburgh later on. He is known for writing several important philosophical works, but he had a very dead faith. And as you mentioned, mm -hmm. he was a contemporary of Wilberforce and of John Newton, uh, John Newton just before. And uh, he was essentially sleepwalking through his ministry, wasn't visiting people. Right. His sermons were very academic. And then basically he had a conversion moment where he realized that he was not saved. He was not really following Christ. He didn't really have the strong change and affections that come with having the Holy Spirit. And once he did, he started to live for Christ fully. And he made a commitment to visit every person in his town and talk to them about their faith or share the gospel. It took him a whole year, but he visited every person in town. His church grew. He just became a whole different person. And he preached and then wrote this 
sermon. It's almost like a little pamphlet called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And the central point of this work is that the affections, and when the Puritans use the word affections, it's it's somewhere between what we would say emotions and desires. It's the things that you really long for, the things that you care about, your deep-seated desires and urges would be the affections. He says you really can't just uh, do away with an affection for the world. So he takes uh, the passage in First John, do not love the world or anything in it. He says, well, you can't just not love the world. What has to happen is your old affections, your old loves and desires and urges have to be replaced with new ones. That's the way things actually work is it's, it's kind of like the uh, pink elephant game where somebody says, don't think of a pink elephant. And then and right. all you can do is think of a pink elephant. Because the problem is you can't just not think of something or you can't just not desire something. You have to have something else that you think about or something else that you desire more. And so this whole book is about in order to grow in godliness, we have to replace old desires with new desires. And that's part of the work of the Spirit in our hearts is to exchange and replace a love for the world with a love for God. That's the way he opens the book. And the way he argues this is kind of an unconventional approach. He he almost argues pragmatically. He's arguing biblically, but he's also yes. arguing pragmatically by saying, hey, look, this is how you would do it, whether it was a godly thing or not. If you want to want something mm-hmm. different than what you want now, that thing has to be more valuable and desirable to you than what you used to want, or else you're going to continue wanting what you used to want. And there's a real nice pragmatism to this. Of This is just the way human beings work. And so if you want to grow in Christ, you need to pay attention to this law of human nature. This approach that he takes, and I realize we're talking about uh, 300 years ago, 400 years ago, uh, you know, this, this approach could be a Tim Keller sermon in the sense that he is biblically based and he believes this because the Bible says so. But if you read this and you weren't a Christian, you would find it very compelling because he also uh, refers to human nature. You know, he, he basically says, here's how the it opens. He says there are two ways to deal with uh, your love of the world. First is to convince yourself it's not worthy and, quote, stop doing it. He says, or the other way is to exchange an old affection for a new affection. And I think that makes so much sense to Christians because they know the Bible and non-Christians, because if you're a non-Christian and you want to change a habit, you don't say, I'm just going to stop doing this. That rarely works. What you typically do is replace it with a healthier habit. And that's fundamentally what he's saying here. And I love this. One of the reasons I liked it is it has such a broad appeal. It makes sense to non-Christians, and it's profoundly biblically true to Christians. Mm -hmm. There's a quote in the middle of the book. He says, the love of the world cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness. And this struck me, and we'll come back to this on the applications here. How do we you know, add this to our real life? A lot of Christian preaching and teaching is trying to demonstrate the worthlessness of the world or of old affections. 
But that in and of itself is not enough to make the change for most people. Instead, he says, it must be supplanted by the love of that which is more worthy than itself. Instead, what, what we should do and what the Bible does is it portrays the beauty and the joy and the wonder of a greater thing to be desired, which is God, than our sin. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory, where he says, it's not that our desires are too weak. It's that they're too strong. It's not that you have a, a desire that is anemic, and that's why you settle for things like sin. Our desires are actually so strong that they should be longing for something more than what you can get in this world. It's He says in that famous passage, it's like settling for mud pies instead of a holiday at sea. Our desires are simply too, they, they fall short of what we were created to desire. Chalmers is going to take make this point basically by saying when we teach and preach, when we're transformed in sanctification, it will be through a deeper and greater desire for something more worthy than what we were previously desiring. And what I think is a cool connection about this book is in the preface in the New Crossway edition, John Piper has written the foreword. He's described a little bit about why he likes this book. And I didn't really know this until I read his foreword, but it makes total sense in hindsight. This book, along with Jonathan Edwards' works, is what really opened Piper's eyes to what's called Christian hedonism. And so one of the reasons this book is on my list of influential books is because Desiring God is on my list of influential books. And so this is kind of a two for one. Desiring God is definitely in my top five most influential books. And this book was in the top five books that inspired Desiring God. So once I read it, now it's in my most. In uh, <laughs> uh, it's in it's in one it of my books that in. has influenced me the most. So Piper, basically in the, in the eighties, has this realization that everybody's core drive is for pleasure. It's to do what brings you the greatest happiness for the longest amount of time. It's very you could call it utilitarian. You could call it Epicurean, which is where hedonism comes from. Mm -hmm. And he basically right. argues that our pleasure and the glory of God are often taught as two different things. And certainly this has been taught for many people who are listening. When when you hear people say things like the Christian life is all about denial, you know, sin is fun, but you have to deny yourself to follow God. That's true, but it's only partially true. And what Piper discovered by reading Thomas Chalmers and Jonathan Edwards was that our deepest desires and God's glory find themselves in each other. So he has the realization that the first question or uh, the first, yeah, the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, what is the chief mm -hmm. end of man? And the answer in the catechism is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever which is great. But Piper makes a subtle change to that statement. And this is the foundation of what he calls Christian hedonism. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. That bringing glory to God and our deepest desires and joys are coterminous. We right. When we desire, when we are desiring God above all things, we are glorifying Him above all things. So the famous Piper quote is, "God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him." 
that when we find our deepest longings, our deepest affections, as Thomas Chalmers would say it, in God, that's when we bring him the most glory. And in fact, that's how we were made to live. Our deepest desires, our deepest longings will only find their satisfaction in God alone. And that is the glory of God, that he is the most desirable thing in the universe. We were made to long for him and to find our satisfaction in him. This was a completely paradigm changing thing for me to realize. And from the Mm -hmm. time I read Desiring God in college until now, I have thought through this lens as I think about scripture. And that is that essentially being a Christian is having our desires and affections refined to what we were created for, to enjoy God, to be satisfied in him, to treasure him above all things. And so uh, Chalmers' influence of how do you expel an old affection? Well, you have a better, greater, more desirous affection is the basis for almost everything that John Piper has written and preached on for the last 40 years. Whole Christian hedonism, desiring God, don't waste your life. All of that is God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. It was right here in the Puritans uh, all along. You know, I completely agree with that, but I came to this from a different route than you did. I mean, I think that's exactly what Chalmers is saying. I think it is profoundly biblical. I think it is truly biblical approach to this. Here's how I came to this and why this is so impactful for me. First, through experience, then secondly, as a pastor. Experientially, when I became a Christian, I was told that I needed to fight sin. And I do believe that's true. But let me refine it a little. The way I fought sin was to stop doing it. And we would help each other stop doing it. And it became a little bit legalistic. And we would repent of our sin and pray. And that's good. I'm not condemning this wholeheartedly. But it was ultimately doomed to fail. And I realized years later that I was on a roller coaster with sin. Sometimes I'm better, sometimes I'm not. And it manifested itself, I think as it does in a lot of people, with a lack of assurance of salvation. It, it it slipped into, and I'm not saying this was the intent, but it slipped into a behavior modification, a sin management kind of an approach to sin. And it I, here's how I liken it, and here's how I felt, is I was playing a game of spiritual whack-a-mole. Everybody's familiar with the old game where you've got a club and the little plastic uh, creatures pop up and and you basically win by as quick as you can, you hit it. And as soon as you do, another one pops up and you're just hitting it. And it becomes a euphemism for trying and trying and trying to control something that can't be controlled. Every time you knock one down, another one pops up. Well, that was kind of the way sin was for me. And then I, I became aware of what you were saying, but to me, it, it I, I realized that I couldn't defeat sin on my own, as it were, with that kind of an approach, that what had to happen was to go deeper into my heart and actually change I, my affections. I wish we would bring this word affections back, but to me, it was uh, my my core desires, the core of who I am had to be changed, not just... Uh, behavior management or fighting sin on my own. Uh, And so this idea of this becoming a new person, not a better person, I'm just using 
a lot of synonyms here for how people think of this, and I did too. And But it really hit home, Cole, when I was pastoring people, and I realized that they were struggling to get a handle on sin issues in their lives. And having read Chalmers and, and the Bible, I realized that instead of praying, for example, God, uh, help me not to be such an angry person or help me not to... Uh, you know, to speak harshly to my wife or those kinds of things. In other words, instead of praying God for some tactical help with sin is we needed to pray deeper and say, God, change my heart and remove the pride that is at the basis of my anger or God, remove the neediness that it's the basis of my people pleasing. And I realized when I needed to ask God and I needed to advise people to pray deeper. Pray for God to change your heart, not just help you manage your behavior. So I, that's a long-winded way of saying is this impacted me deeply in the way I pastor people and the way I go about the Christian life. I just came to it in a little different way. Yeah, the, the applications here are really powerful for pastoral ministry, whether it's on the preaching and teaching side or just on the personal transformation side. I transformation first, I think, like you've said, for most people, they need to hear, stop trying to just stop things, start trying to replace things. So, right. you know, the fruit of the flesh in Galatians chapter five are these things, anger and lust and greed. And the fruit of the spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. God, what he is doing in a Christian's heart is taking the old and replacing the new. The new fruit is growing on the tree. The old fruit is being pushed off the end of the tree. Those will not bud anymore in the Christian life. And so what we want is instead of um, just trying to stop being angry, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can be more gracious and kind and patient and peaceful. So in your own transformation, there is certainly merit in saying, I'm going to put things in place so that I won't do certain things. I'm not going to put myself in a place of temptation. I'm not going to be around people that lead me to do things or be around certain places where I'm tempted. That's that's all well and good. But on a deeper level, the core desire to do those things must be replaced with a core desire for something else, for God. And that's the key to being a new person in Christ is having a renewed set of desires and affections as opposed to I don't do anything anymore because everything is just a stop doing this. Instead, it's a, hey, replace it, start doing this instead. Yeah, one of the phrases in Chalmers' work really sticks with me. He says, what cannot be destroyed may be displaced. And I thought, mm. that's exactly right. Now, I'm not condemning effort, and neither are you. If you're an alcoholic, let's just not go to bars. If if I'm an addict, let's not hang around the dealers. I, we're not condemning effort. But what we're saying is, is that that's not going to work. That's not going to be sufficient for it. The, the spirit is going to have to change our very affections. And what he's saying is what can't be destroyed, because I think there are going to be temptations throughout the Christian life. And I know an awful lot of addicts who are going to wrestle with those desires to some extent all their life. And so, but what cannot be destroyed 
may be displaced. And that's mm -hmm. the beauty of this and the power of this idea is that the love of God can grow so big that it simply, as you said, pushes the anger and the greed and the lust and the immorality. It pushes it out of our lives. Mm -hmm. An application for that to people who preach and teach, which I know we have a lot of the listen to the podcast that are doing some kind of teaching, is it is easy to teach people by saying, stop doing this. Or as mm -hmm. Chalmers put it, and then later the way Piper would put it, is by demonstrating the worthlessness of whatever it is that is the idol or the sin or the misplaced desire. But it's actually better for people if you show them a more magnificent thing to desire. And so part of our teaching right. and preaching needs to be extolling, celebrating, pointing people to the wonder and the pleasure of God and loving God. That in turn will, uh, in relief against whatever it is that they are currently desiring, show that their desire is worthless because it will show that the desire for God is so much better. So we need to spend more time in our teaching, and I have to remind myself of this as well, we need to spend more time in our teaching telling people how wonderful it is to desire God and to follow God, rather than just how terrible it is to desire other things. And this is something that probably every teacher could get better. I, I remember somebody, maybe it was Mark Dever, said something uh, that you know most young teachers think that life change comes through scolding people or telling them how bad the things that they're doing are when mm -hmm. you realize later on most of the life life change you see come from encouraging people and painting a picture of what godliness would look like if they would pursue it i think that's great teaching advice that's really true and i'll give you an example is uh with anxiety is the recognition and the knowledge that my anxiety is not making any difference whatsoever in the outcome of any situation. While I know that that is true, it is that knowledge is not sufficient to defeat my anxiety. And so when I talk about anxiety now, I talk less about that and more about Philippians uh, 4, 6. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God, and the peace of God that passes understanding will guard your hearts and minds. Instead of saying, look, I, I want to scold you because you know better than this. You know your anxiety is going to fix it. And we all do. And we'll say, yes, 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 I need to do better. Actually, I think it's better to say, let's encourage you, pray more. Turn your worries over to God. Let the Spirit work in your heart. That, to me, that's an example of better teaching than what I used to do, is let's mm -hmm. go look at the biblical solution rather than come let me reason with you and convince you your worrying isn't useful. I'm pretty sure we all know that. It just isn't mm -hmm. sufficient. It isn't sufficient to destroy the anxiety. Mm -hmm. Well, and even a couple of verses later where Paul says, think about things that are true and honorable and praiseworthy. Right and virtuous, it's doing that that will dispel, like you said, spending your time worrying, thinking about anxiety. It's that replacement again. And we see this in the Bible all the time. Jesus talks about this endlessly. That's his whole method in the Sermon on the Mount is replacing an old, dead right. righteousness with a new, vibrant righteousness relationship with God. 
we should definitely speak to our own hearts that way, but we should certainly teach and preach that way, showing the excellencies and the wonders and the glory of God as a way of exchanging the worthlessness of sin and idolatry and the old human practices that we have. Uh, but it's much harder to teach that way. And we're not convinced that it will, yes. will work because deep down, I, sometimes I think we think it's easier to criticize or it's easier just to talk about how mm-hmm. something won't work. It's often harder to present a real solution. You know, my my final kind of exclamation point out of Chalmers' book for me is he makes the point near the end that the love for God and love for the world cannot coexist. They're not just intention. They actually are at enmity. And so, you know, my love for God, if I will hold on and nurture that, it will expel the love for the world. And I really appreciated that final comment that he made about just the recognition that uh, those two will not coexist. And so if you will, if I will nurture the love of God in my heart, it will expel my love of the world. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.